Hello and welcome to this month's episode of the Campaign Podcast, powered by Something Else, with me, Claire Beale. Today in the studio we have James Kirkham, the Chief of Copper 90, Joe Weston, a Director at We Are Social Sport, and my wonderful colleague Nikki Kemp, Trends Editor of Campaign. Today we're discussing the evolution of sports marketing. Now, sport has changed, we know that, but do you know quite how much the triathlon is replacing the fast car as the new midlife crisis? Generation Z shuns lager for athleisure events and green juice. Fit is the new cool. And on top of that, this fully connected world is always plugged in, moving from platform to platform, accessing content on demand. And through this flux, sport retains the power to gel marketing messages on a global level, uniting audiences and consumers through universal passions. But with technology driving so much change, the way marketers can capitalise on sport has also shifted significantly. So we've got plenty to talk about. I just wanted to begin, though, by asking my guests what sport they love and how they express their love for it. Joe, I'm going to kick off with you. Pretty safe response for me. Football has been my passion since growing up. I used to play as much as I physically could, and then I realised quite quickly that I wasn't going to become a professional, so I dedicated my career to trying to get back into sports. Uh, and that's why I'm now doing the job that I do now. Dream job. Dream job. Nikki, what about you? I'm going to also say football, but for a very different reason. So come rain, shine or recently buckets of snow on a Saturday morning, you will find me on a touchline supporting the big, big team that is Ashton FC, which my four-year-old plays for. So for me, sport is something that's so special to our family life in terms of bringing everyone together. And I just feel very lucky to be able to talk about it and write about it in my work as well. Uh, what positions is your four-year-old playing? He plays the position of very, very enthusiastic, if not always accurate or aware of which goal he should be kicking the ball into. <laughs> Wonderful. James, what about you? I'm going to guess there's going to be three in a row. As a man who's working at a football business, I'm afraid so. That's football, though. Football's a broad church. Football can be the kind of glitz and glamour and showbiz kind of Premier League at Old Trafford or the Emirates or it can be kind of saving Dulwich Hamlets right now or not dissimilar to Nicky on a Sunday you'll find me coaching a bunch of under nines called Mormead FC. Oh well I have to I have to break this tradition and go for something that's not football uh, but anything outside that involves cold and wet and mud is is not for me so I like to do a bit of weightlifting in the gym and a bit of chess which I think we we, we agree that's a sport. Yeah, yeah, good. Let's kick off by just talking about how the relationship between people and sport is changing. From what I said in the intro, it kind of sounds like this is a phenomenon to do with young people. Is this a, is this a sort of millennials trend or is there a fundamental shift in, in the way we all as human beings are relating to sport? I do think there is a an age difference perspective in the respect that anyone under the age of, let's say, 34 have grown up in a different time using media in a different way. If you look at the very young, they have that sort of unknown arrogance where everything is on their terms, on demand, when they want it, without meaning to be, but that drives a new model of consumption of sport. So in my professional sport, as in the one I work in every day, like football, we compare it to really the music industry of 17 years ago where it's been completely disrupted and dismantled from day one. It is absolutely sort of disseminated content in different places at different times on the terms of the audience. I think what's particularly interesting is those fans are embracing technology in their droves 
and they are in turn driving the new consumption of the game. It isn't necessarily led from the powers that be. On the contrary, it's normally based around experience and convenience and what a fan actually wants. They're far more empowered than they used to be. And Nikki, uh, your your job is sort of following trends and identifying trends early on. How how long out did you see this trend coming? Is it something that's been going on for years or is it quite a recent trend? I think it's been going on for years. I think there's a really interesting sh- sort of fundamental shift happening at the moment in terms of what motivates people, how they define success and, and how they kind of interact with brands. And at the same time, you've got this huge generational shift. And I know we've sort of said strong is the new skinny and there was acres and acres written about athleisure. But for me, it's all about control. I think we live in really, really uncertain times and it is a generational thing to some degree. But I also see it across the board in terms of people taking more control over whether that's their media consumption habits, whether that's their exercise, whether it's their social media profiles. So actually they don't want to get totally smashed and have loads of pictures of them looking terrible. They want to stay in control. And I think all of those trends point not just to sport but to exercise as a really, really important space for people to have that control, to feel empowered, to connect with like-minded individuals. I mean, I think in terms of the theatre of sport, there's so many different trends that are pointing to, to that as a, a great place for brands and individuals to sort of congregate around something that is a shared love in an uncertain time. Yeah, the only thing that I would add to that as well is that people seem to be valuing experiences over consumption of product. So increasingly, people are looking to have shared experiences with friends and sport just provides a natural way of doing that. It's typically one of the cheapest ways of doing that as well. Rather than going on holiday, if you go down to Hackney Marshes on a Sunday and play an 11 side game, that could be the highlight of your whole week. Is that in any sense a sort of a, a reaction against the individualism and the, the sort of isolation that can sometimes come from sitting constantly on your own looking at your your screen is it actually a return to the joy of being out there with other people I think technology can bring people together as well like what's previously been a really solitary pursuit especially if you're as bad a runner as me can become more of a kind of group activity through apps or through Fitbits and there's this whole idea of kind of alone together like we're doing things on our own but we're we're doing them together so in some ways that sense of community that you is harder to get through individual sport is is now happening more I think many members of the media might accuse screen time as the kind of number one problem if you like on things like obesity and preventing people actually getting out in a park but I love what you're just saying there the kind of the the natural correlation between the two I know young kids and teens who watch that then immediately go out in the park and try and replicate the tricks or they try and mimic the trick shot that they've just seen or that action which is actually an age-old kind of process of seeing and then doing likewise on something like Fitbit technology or the way Nike Plus first kind of leveraged that that was actually all about spreading the enthusiasm so little data nuggets, seeing where my friend was running 5K, would actually spur me on and thinking, God, I need to go and run actually, and rather than sat here. So there's actually a really nice cyclical element to that where, yes, the screen is a part of it, but it's got more of a symbiotic relationship with going in the real world and doing something. Joe, I wanted to, to move on a little bit to talk about um, gaming and in the sports context and how how gaming and sports coming together because it, it, it does follow on from this conversation, doesn't it? Definitely. I mean, it's a really interesting space at the moment as you, when you look at 
the kind of the, the ability that people have to create kind of digital world that mimics their own world. So, you know, the, the time and effort that people put into creating their own avatars, placing them into, you know, FIFA or any of those other games and then trying to build up a whole new life through that game is, is fascinating. And I do think in the future we're going to see an even closer link between the kind of offline football playing and the online football playing and those two worlds coming together, I think, is going to be a fascinating development in the next year or two. And where, where do brands get into that? Well, one of the ways that, at a very tactical level, one of the things that we're seeing is the rise of kind of digital out-of-home in-games. So there are companies out there that are going out and purchasing all of the LED boards around the sides of screens, as well as uh, kind of the jumbotrons that you get in-match and actually selling those to advertisers. So to be able to, if you're a Champions League sponsor, to be able to have your sponsorship on pitch in the real world, but also in the game is a really interesting link that you can you can uh, you can pay for now and it's already happening isn't it i i agree completely with everything joe's just said i think the blurring is almost complete or it's certainly being completed so there is hardly any delineation between real world offline online virtual gaming off gaming so adidas's new predator boot as was launched a couple of months ago now i think it was one of their most engaged pieces of advertising was the the avatar the video game graphic holding aloft the boot so again most kids, most teens, most young people under the age of 24 didn't even stop and think of the fact that it's Alex Hunter from the game FIFA advertising the boot to them, and it was one of their most engaged spots. Likewise, anyone under the age of 30 has grown up with an education in football predicated on gaming. So whether it be playing FIFA as your hype mechanic to get you into the game in the first place for the game you're about to watch, whether it be seeing talent within games recreated so that you can do incredible spinning volley kicks from someone like a Ronaldo, arguably better than the player himself, so they're made to be godlike, whether it be your encyclopedic knowledge of the game through data and stats and players that never existed before. The other thing it's done, it's a completely unravel this tribal mentality where when I was young, it was just about a small English club that I would support, maybe a parochial kind of English league. Now, kids as young as seven and eight and tell you in depth about the MLS or tell you all about about the Spanish second tier division because they play it within a gaming environment and that has huge opportunity for brands which is opening up a global game that just never used to be there. Nikki, do you, do you see brands really embracing the, the gaming opportunity or, or are we very much at the beginnings? I think we're very much at the beginnings of this and it's actually really interesting um, because something that James mentioned at the Future Fit conference about guys in ties and the kind of traditional media way that we've sort of covered sport and watched sport. I think we're seeing that from a media perspective, there's so many more platforms available. There's integration um, within games. There's, there's a lot more you can do and a lot more ways to do that. But we're seeing still a lot of brands do stick to quite a sort of cut and paste traditional sponsorship model. Um, and you look at some of those and think, well, this kind of old school blood, sweat and tears sponsorship, I always call it. And you just think, why are you not taking up that opportunity? Is it that you, this is what you've always done in the past and you're looking to how you activate the sponsorship in the past? Is it because right holders are restrictive? Are you working with the wrong agencies? But there are definitely quite a lot of um, brands where you think, actually, there's more you could be doing in this space and there's, there's more platforms that you could be engaged with. I like, too, that there's an influence from gaming so i don't know a gaming platform like twitch which is always about concurrent commentary which is always about feedback reply right to reply that just never used to exist in the traditional pundit 
sort of studio suit sort of format like as Nikki has just described. But it definitely will influence full stop the means with which we consume sport because if that generation expect a far more polemic debate, a far more lively, sometimes aggressive, polarised kind of opinion and also tonnes of feedback that a pundit responds to live from an audience, then that's going to drive new broadcast models. Joe, the, the, the launch of uh, We Are Social Sport presumably is, is predicated on you recognising this kind of opportunity, but w- is it your clients coming to you going, we need to do more in this space or, or are you pushing them? I think we're we're pushing them because one of the things that we see and one of the driving factors behind launching with a social sport was looking at the last few years of rights negotiations for all of the big kind of golden egg, golden ticket rights deals going. There was always a rumour in the background that one of the big tech giants was going to come in and swoop up some of those rights. And for us as the world's largest social media agency, that is a massive opportunity because suddenly you don't have that problem where you have to watch something on screen and then do something on your device over here to kind of augment that activity. If everything moves into a digital space, suddenly your ecosystem is much more powerful and you can track the value of the activity that you're doing from the live stream through to your kind of uh, auxiliary content and all the way back around again. And suddenly you can just track every activity you're doing and the value it's driving back into the brand. And for us to be able to help navigate our clients through that change is huge. You know, if you're a Champions League sponsor and suddenly Facebook have the rights to the Champions League, you've probably track, been tracking traditional metrics of, you know, viewer numbers on TV. But if that totally changes, how do you reconcile that value? And that's what we're here to do, to try and help people guide guide them through that change. So are people actually sitting through entire matches now? They're all sort of on different platforms interacting and, and looking at snippet. James, you've got Copper 90. Do you have, do you have rights to stuff? Are we you... get given them, yeah. We started as a business without rights and that was almost its raison d'etre because it, it focused on everything outside the 90 minutes that made the 90 matter more. That was its kind of purpose and point of being and it meant that you could have a fan-centric perspective. But over the years, because of the weight and scale of the audience that we've been given rights, we've shown plenty of matches and we plan to do more. It is changing, though. I don't necessarily think it's good, but the 90-minute product is under threat because of everything that we've described about a new media landscape for a younger audience. The idea of the match being more like the blurb on the back of a book is more commonplace, and people want that little snack, that snapshot of what happened. We're going to see a lot of that in the next World Cup, 11 different time zones. You just simply won't have the time these days to sit through the whole plethora of matches, and so the means of the catch-up highlights being done in smart, creative ways, pushed to you through messenger platforms through bot style technology that's a really natural progression because it means we can kind of consume in an instant as I say I worry about that because I think young audiences need to watch 90 minutes of football when they're there and experiencing it and we're seeing a, an increased sort of duality if you like where there's one thing going to a game for 90 minutes but your actual catch-up is entirely different. Nikki we, we hear a lot about um, decreasing attention spans are brands able to follow audiences around this sort of flitting between platform and platform? I think this is the really exciting thing about sport is that a lot of the time when we're talking about decreasing attention spans, we're talking about brands effectively trying to steal time from their audiences. The thing with sport is there is just so many stories to be told 
And the evolution of all the media platforms around sport has shown the, the appetite for those stories. So for me, it's not really about decreasing attention. I think it's just the type of attention is, is changing. And, you know, I know there's a lot of talk around dark social and, and how consumers are using dark social when they're using sport. I mean, the excitement on these groups is absolutely palpable. I mean, sport is loud. If mm. sport watching in our house is too loud, really... I mean, it's it's beyond <laughs> what should be. But also that that's on social as well. So I think actually there are so many more opportunities to get consumers' attention in something that they want to give their time to. This is their release. This is their this is their you know passion, and and it's just a, a great space. And some of that's being driven by the platforms themselves. The platforms are going out to brands and agencies and saying six seconds. That's the optimal video length for three seconds. Like. What can you do in that period of time that really captures someone's attention? For us, working in the sports world, sport bucks that trend. You know, We've done videos that have been 15, 20, 30 minutes long, and the average view duration on those can be really, really high, and it does buck that trend, and that's where sport sort of separates itself from other parts of the uh, marketing industry. Joe, Nikki mentioned there dark social. I know you've done, you've done some work with Adidas through the, the WhatsApp Tango squad. Tell us, what, what is dark social? So dark social is anything that cannot really be publicly tracked and is typically instant messaging. So Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp Messenger, any of the kind of Instagram messages that get sent back and forth, the stuff that you can't see really, but it's where the vast majority of social sharing happens. And we see that within our target audience of 14 to 19-year-olds for Adidas, that's up to 75% of all shares of our content come from untraceable sources, aka dark social. So when we launched the Tango Squad uh, campaign, it was designed to tap in to that new behaviour and actually deliver content direct to people and then let them share it on our behalf. Gaining permission to get into the dark social space for brand is presumably um, something that you have to navigate very carefully. Do you? Are there any rules about how you do it? I think the value exchange is the, the key point. Uh, we are very privileged to work with such an esteemed brand like Adidas that has a lot of social cachet already. You know, people want to follow. They want to hear what we're going to say. We also have access to Paul Pogba and the Champions League and Leo Messi. And, you know, these are some of the greatest players and institutions that have ever existed within the football world and we're the gatekeeper of that so we can provide access to that type of thing and in in response what we want is to you know get access to your influence so there's a kind of you know a symbiotic relationship that builds there and that's what gives us the opportunity to tap into that as a as a marketing channel i think what becomes interesting there is maybe a slightly utopian vision of where that can get to and i agree and i think messaging is is huge and i think it will only become even more huge because it's all predicated on convenience. What you've seen in the Far East with the likes of WeChat where no one leaves their messenger platform, they buy their pizza, they order their Uber, they donate to charity and of course they have their discussion and conversation. The very natural therefore inclination for platforms like Facebook through their messenger, through WhatsApp to allow the housing of frankly everything is very natural because it means, to Joe's point earlier, you're not clumsily jumping around from place to place, from platform to site to TV and back again. So it feels incredibly natural to me that I might be having a conversation in a community of my making where I maybe make a micro payment using my thumbprint just like I'm on my bank to then watch the latest match for a quid straight out of my bank account. Like That's an unbelievably easy, seamless journey where all the technology currently exists. So you can see how you leap ahead very naturally into a world that the audience kind of want because it's all convenience. just want to talk a little bit about technology before we start to wrap up. We've 
We've seen examples where, for example, Red Bull and Mercedes have allowed fans to experience what it's like being in the cockpit of a Formula One car at 200 miles per hour or, or Manchester City's 360-degree camera in the Etihad Stadium giving behind-the-scenes access. But what, what's on the horizon in terms of augmented reality or virtual reality that's going to take uh, sports marketing onto the next level? Nikki, what, what do you see coming? I think it's actually really interesting because I think what has happened to date is you're seeing a lot of brands that are spending the majority of their sponsorship activation budget on doing a one cookie cutter VR experience and um, you look at something like O2 and England Rugby and they're doing you know get pitch side and have it you know through VR and these these deals are often at the expense of the grassroots activity and it's it's a really interesting space because there are te- technological opportunities that you didn't have before but it's a real question of what are you doing that as, at the expense of are you doing it to have a nice story to tell that actually is only going to a very few people or are you doing it for a real genuine brand reason? And I think in the UK as well, we've got the issue that actually we don't have the basics in in place yet. We don't have connected stadiums. You know, there's a lot of utility that needs to be put in the right order before we kind of focus just on the next new shiny thing in isolation, if that makes sense. It's all about enhancing that experience. And I think... The the ways uh, that I've seen it used that to me are of most use at the moment is in stadium looking at people who maybe have a mental or physical disability and how can you use augmented reality or virtual reality to improve their stadium experience. Quite often what you find with things like virtual reality is that you just get a watered down version of what it's really like to be in a scrum or in the in the you know in the pit lane. But if you are if we can use that uh, technology to actually enhance someone's experience who typically has quite a bad time in the stadium then that's of huge benefit and they're normally the best cases I've seen. But before we wrap up, I want to get from each of you one example of modern day sports marketing that you really wish you'd done. So obviously not one of your own. I'm going to find this question really hard to answer without one of my own case studies. So I'd like to answer it in a slightly different way, which is to look at something which I think could revolutionise where it's going to go rather than what has happened. Um, and that would be a company that I've been following quite closely called Sweatchain. Now Sweatchain is a uh, blockchain-based uh, rewards program for people who work out. And basically the more you sweat, the more of your coin that you can can generate and then you can use that to get better gym memberships or buy new apparel that type of thing and I think that's a really interesting early experiment into what blockchain technology could do in the sports marketing industry. I love that it's also such a brilliant intersection what we're saying earlier between the physical and the virtual. Brilliant. Nikki what would you choose? It would have to be Sport England's This Girl Can. I just love it. I, I love the way they've broken stereotypes. I love the way that they have real women and it's not a marketing gimmick. It's just genuinely empowering. Every time I watch one of those ads I just want to get out there and you know start running and that I think the insight that that campaign is based on that women weren't exercising because they feared the judgment of others it just shows that even now with all the technology and all the changes in this market if you've got a brilliant piece of insight wonderfully creatively executed that's great and I just like the fact that it shows women sweating while they're doing sport because a lot of advertising doesn't show that and they're not having an existential crisis about their hair getting wet or whatever it is. I just, I love it. They're beautifully simple but really pioneering. James, what would yours be? Mine would be the Stormzy Pogba piece that Adidas did. It won't be 
purely because it was a really smart social strategy, though. It'll be because it's created, I think, seismic waves in sport and the way we think about fans. Fans aren't one-dimensional. We're not paper-thin. Guess what? I'm a football fan, but I adore music too. And they smash together grime music and football. And in my opinion, something as brilliant as Nike London that came out a few weeks ago has only been legitimised to even come out because that started it about 18 months ago. And I think increasingly we're going to see cultural crossover which will really take sport to a sort of a new new level we need we need to record this podcast again in another 12 months don't we because it sounds like things are moving quickly and there's so many opportunities out there thank you all so much thank you to my guests for coming in today that's joe weston james kirken and nicola kemp you've been listening to the campaign podcast powered by something else with me claire beale and produced by the wonderful laura hyde please join us again next month i've no idea what we'll be talking about but i'm sure it'll be very interesting thank you 